You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. The gospel of enduring joy, once again, we're taking a look at this reality that, that God gives us through relationship with Jesus Christ. If you missed last week, um, you missed us kicking off this new series in the letter to the Philippians that Paul wrote. And really, we've entitled this series Enduring Joy because of all the letters that Paul wrote, this is the one that talks about joy the most. And it's a joy that's only found through Jesus Christ. In fact, just to briefly reset things, because we're going to build off of where we went last week, for those of you who were gone last week, really, joy is found by how you define your life. If you define your life by your circumstances, by your situation, by what you have, by what other people say about or think about you, by what you've achieved, then your joy is going to ebb and, ebb and flow. And really, that whatever's going on in your life is going to dictate and determine really your joy, your happiness. But the reality of God's word and the reality of what his scripture declares to us is that when you define Jesus as the source of your life, then you will find a joy that transcends circumstance and difficulty. It's an enduring joy. Now, we balance that with with the reality that we live in a broken world. You're not always going to be happy. You're not always going to experience joy. But there is a joy that Jesus promises us that's enduring, not only in the here and now, but enduring for the future. And that's why it's the gospel. That's why, in many ways, it is the good news. Because the reality is we live in a broken world. That's, that's not a hard sell, right? This world is not the way God intended it to be. We broke it, and he is in that process of fixing it. The Bible describes that as redemption. He's repairing, he's restoring things to what he always intended them to be, culminating in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection from the cross, and really concluding, becoming to completion when Jesus comes back. But in the meantime, God is working his plan of redemption, and he invites us into that. Wherever there's brokenness, we repair it, we restore it to what God always intended, first with people, and then with situations and circumstances. That is the gospel of enduring joy, and that is once again what we will look at together as we now open this first chapter of the book of Philippians. So would you pray with me as we prepare to engage God's word? We thank you for this time of worship that we've been experiencing together, and Lord, we thank you that you make your word come alive to us. As only you can, we once again ask for a demonstration of your spirit's power that each person here would have what they need to know you better, to be more like you, and yes, to experience more joy, more happiness in their life as they define their life through you. So Lord, make your scripture come alive to us. Make it feel like we are the only one in the room and your word is speaking directly to us. And we ask this in your name, amen. So, the gospel of enduring joy. We'll start with the first eight verses of um, this letter. And then next week, my intention is to circle back around and really to do more of a broader overview so you can see how all the pieces of this letter fit together. But for now, we're gonna start into chapter one. So here we go. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with 
joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And it is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. The gospel of Jesus makes us humble and happy. And Paul is modeling that here. And there is some detail here in these opening verses that I have read past and that really I have missed until I backed up this week and spent some time studying this. But this really is remarkable. Look at how this letter starts. For the most part, it starts like all of Paul's letters, but there's some very significant things here. He writes to everyone, all of God's holy people. He does that in most of his other letters. But here he singles out the overseers and the deacons. And another word that is synonymous with overseer, overseer is elder. So he singles out the leadership of the church. You don't hear us use the word deacon here at Grace. We instead use the word ministry leader because we feel like that's more descriptive. But that's, that's really who he's singling out. He's singling out the entire leadership of the church. This is the only letter that Paul writes where he does that. And I think the reason he does that, as, as many scholars I read also think, is because of this. How does he describe him and Timothy? as servants. Another way this word can be translated is slave. Now, at first glance, nothing really significant about that either in that Paul and Timothy describe themselves as servants, as slaves of Jesus Christ in other letters. But once again, this is the only time in the letters we have from Paul where he does not say he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. There is a humility here. He deliberately goes out of his way to honor the entire church by addressing all of them and by addressing the leadership, but he drops the title for himself. In that culture as well as in ours, titles matter to people. And yet he is, I think, deliberately modeling what he's going to teach later on in this letter. If we jump forward to Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul is modeling what he is going to explicitly teach a, later, a little later on in this letter. And he can do that because the gospel of enduring joy makes you humble and it makes you happy. Because no longer do you look for your joy, your happiness, necessarily in what other people think or say about you. It begins to erode our insecurities like overemphasis on titles. Because the source of our joy is Jesus. And once again, we don't add Jesus to our life. He is our life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when we make him our life, it changes our perspective and it changes our foundation. This is an acronym I ran across in one of the commentaries I was reading this week. And I thought, okay, yeah, Paul's really modeling this, a focus on Jesus and others and then yourself. And this doesn't mean you don't neglect yourself or you know, don't experience joy or happiness. Obviously, that's not what this is saying. But in our culture, with its emphasis on self, worship of self, my needs first, life all about me, this is a really good reminder about where joy is found. 
true enduring joy is found in Jesus. But look what he goes on to say. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. The gospel of enduring joy, it makes us humble and happy, but it also makes us prayerful and thankful. What's your prayer life like? I mean, if you're like me, you go through seasons where you are really praying a lot and other seasons maybe where you're, where you're not or you're struggling with that, but, but what are you praying for? Who are you praying for? Because again, interestingly, in this letter and in the other letters that Paul writes, he does pray for situations and circumstances, certainly so, and we should too, but most of the time he's praying for people. So how do you pray for people? Well, what's Paul modeling here? He's modeling a thankfulness. And in my own growth and intimacy with the Lord, one of the things he's teaching me in this season of life, not just here from Philippians, but in my own reading and and what he's doing in my life, is there is a really, really close link between prayer and thankfulness. They season and shape each other and need to. For us, to, to walk and live in the joy that God has for us and wants for us. Think of it this way. Think of the relationships in your life. So for those of you who are married, spouses, what do you pray for your spouse? And how often when you're praying for your spouse, are you thanking God for them and, and being specific? Because how often is it easy for us to default to what we don't have or what we don't like or what isn't going well? God, please humble my spouse and let me see it. You know, yeah, right. How about thank you for my spouse as a starting place? You can do this with any relationship. Your family, what do you pray for your family? What do you pray for your friends? What do you pray for your coworkers? You see, there's a reason God tells us in so many places in his word, like 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, that the passage that Jamie and I adopted for our family when we first got married, be joyful, always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's will is that you are happy on his terms, which are oftentimes, well, all the time, better than yours, but often align with yours, but God wants you happy. God wants you praying and talking in intimacy with him and listening to him, and he wants you thankful. And you see that marriage all throughout scripture. It seems like everywhere I look, when there's prayer being talked about, there's thankfulness not far behind. The antidote to criticalness is thankfulness. The gospel makes us thankful and prayerful and he goes on to say this he being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus man that that is motivating and that really describes the maturing that that God does in our lives I mean do you see the promise in what we just read that when you cross over to death to life, when you receive Jesus into your life and his spirit comes into you, God literally comes and lives inside of you, he is going to begin that process of sanctification with you, which is the process of becoming more and more like him, more and more like Jesus. And there is a power, there is a work that he does that has nothing to do with you. 
And that is so reassuring. Because doesn't your life at times feel like three steps forward and two steps back? And sometimes it feels like two steps forward and three steps back. I had an experience like that this week. We were having a meeting as a staff and there was someone who, who said something in that meeting that I interpreted critically and was frustrating to me. So we keep short accounts as a crew and so I initiated talking to this staff person about that and I said, what did you mean when you said that? And he said, oh, I meant this. And I said, oh, oh. Oh, because that's not how I heard it. This is how I interpreted it. And I described, no, I didn't, no, I wasn't even thinking that. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to communicate that, that way, but this is, this is what I meant. And I went afterwards, after we had, you know, worked our way through that afterwards, as I was just thinking to myself, I thought, Jay, really? Are you that insecure? That you perceive that as an attack upon you? And I was reminded of this verse, that despite my insecurities, despite those times it feels like, geez, am I still working on this? Am I still slogging through this? Am I still confronting this brokenness in my life? And there are times that we do that and we think, gosh, things seem to get, be getting worse, not better. There is a promise here for us to take to the bank, and that is he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. God is at work in your life even when you can't see it. And that's so reassuring because life sometimes can be so discouraging. Years ago, I read a book by a pastor by the name of Ron Mill who is now with the Lord, but he wrote this book called God Works the Night Shift. And the basic premise of the book was even when you are sleeping, God is at work. You ever thought about that? God is always doing his, his work even when you can't see it, even when it seems like nothing's happening, that is profoundly encouraging. Now understand, we balance this with the very reality that Paul will go on to talk about in this letter in the second chapter, verse 12. He'll say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't mean that God does all the work and we don't do any of it. This, yes, there's work that we do in aligning ourselves with the Holy Spirit and the hard work of obedience and trust when it's not easy and living for him, but, but the, it's a balance here. Do you get this? Man, God will work in you in ways that you can't anticipate, you can't see, and sometimes it feels like nothing's happening. And this is a promise that something is happening. God is at work, maturing us, making us more like Jesus. He says this, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now, and we just looked at verse six, so we'll jump to seven, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me, this gospel makes us partners and participants. If you know and love Jesus, when you chose to follow him, you became a partner in the gospel, whether you knew it or not. And that partnership has very practical application for us as, as Jesus followers together. The primary reason Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians was it was a thank you letter. And it was a thank you for them supporting him, for the resources they gave him, for the money they gave him, for the motivation they gave him, for the relationship they gave him. They sent Epaphrodites to him. This was the church that stood by Paul when there were other churches that didn't. 
because they were partners. And to understand really what this word partner means, we really do need to give it some definition. In the original language, this is the word koinonia, and many of you are familiar with that. And that can be translated fellowship, it could be translated sharing, but in this context, this is really talking about a commitment. By way of example, in Jesus' day in the first century, if you and I decided to go in the fishing business, we would pool our money together, we'd sacrifice, we'd buy a boat, we would koinonia in order to, to have this business together. We would both sacrifice and invest, and it would cost us something. But there would be a commitment there. And that's really what partnership is. It's mutual self-sacrifice for a shared vision. We as a church, we as Jesus followers, we are in partnership together as Jesus followers. And that has very practical um, application. Let me back up here for a minute. Not only do we give to others by way of example, like with Vacation Bible School, we just spent this last week investing into the lives of hundreds of kids, and there were hundreds of you who did that. There were over 260 of you who showed up to serve that week, and a number of you who served in the weeks and months leading up to that and, and served after, helping pull decorations down and put things back, and you know, it just goes on and on and on. And that's, that's fantastic. And, and our kids raised over $1,900 for Backpack Blessings. The goal was 1000 They said, no, we're gonna almost double up that goal. $1,900. Your kids, your grandkids brought in over 1,000 boxes of cereal. All that will go right out the doors here to the community in the name of Christ. I think that's pretty cool. But it's not just us giving to the community. There are, there are other Jesus followers we're in partnership who have given to us. And we've been kind of waiting for the right opportunity to tell this story, but this, this is an outstanding story. A couple of years ago, there was a church in our community called Columbia Ridge Community Church that for a number of reasons had to, had to close their doors. And when they did so, they realized they had a, a bunch of assets and resources. So they set up a grant program and encouraged ministries and churches to apply for grants based on you know, what they were doing in the community and um, what they were doing to advance the gospel. And so we applied for some grants and we had three grants that were, that were fulfilled. Backpack Blessings, Community Garden, and our short-term missions each got $10,000. We received $30,000 worth of grant resources from, from Columbia Ridge. I mean, that is just remarkable. Folks, that's a lot of cereal in backpacks, right? That's a lot of produce out there as we look to expand and, and deepen what we do at the Community Garden, and that's obviously, you've heard some of the stories of the life change that comes through short-term missions. I mean, is that cool or what? That's gospel partnership. We're in partnership together. So, so are you? Are you in partnership? Are you a participant in the gospel here at Grace? This is a great start. But this isn't, this isn't where it ends, right? I mean, if we put this specifically in terms of application from the letter of Philippians, there are so many of you who faithfully give to the mission and vision here at Grace. We're able to do the things we do because of our gospel partnership together, and you tangibly, practically give generously, consistently to the, the mission and vision here at Grace. It's, it's awesome. And there is another 
aspect of that that we've asked you to be a part of, to be partners with, and that's this thing called Grace Unleashed. And for some of you, probably a lot of you, this is gonna be a little redundant, so I ask for your patience here as we quickly touch bases on what this is for those who are newer to our church family. But really what this is is we're looking to reduce or eliminate our mortgage here on this facility by this time next year. And this begins to take on a new urgency because we're just a little over a year out now from, from doing this. We started this list last fall, if you'll remember. And again, the, the intent behind this is when we built the first floor here, we assumed a mortgage. And then when we built the second floor in 2006, we assumed a mortgage. We, we raised a lot of money and a lot of resources for that, but there was still some that got rolled into the mortgage. So in 2008, when we finished the second floor, we had $1.7 million left on our mortgage. We've been faithfully paying on that. And uh, by the, September of next year, we'll be, have that down to 1.3 million. But we began to ask ourselves, in these last couple years of this mortgage note before it comes up for renewal, what if we were to, to raise the resources to either reduce or completely retire it? Well, if we eliminate it, we retire it, we'll save over $600,000 in interest. That's a lot of cereal boxes and backpacks, right? You may not know it, but we uh, spend $12,000 a month on our mortgage, and we would save that. For those of you who like more math, $144,000 a year. We would model and practice biblical values, and we also obviously would invest in the future. And this is the part I've been wanting to get to. Um, I wanted to give a frame of reference for those of you who don't know what this is about. So now, in the here and now, starting June, we gave you an update and where we were with our resources, and those June numbers are the ones you see in parentheses there, and I'll walk us through this. But we started this focus this last fall with $146,000 in the bank already to leverage towards it. That came from the faithful giving of many of you to the second floor. Once it was completed, you still gave to the Amazing Grace Makeover. That's what AGM stands for. That's also from the budget overages we've had in previous years when you've given over and above the mission and vision. When we finished our fiscal year at the end of August, we've taken that money and rolled it into this bank account. So we've been saving. So we started this with almost $150,000, which is awesome. And then in, as of June, a number of you have pledged uh, $358,000 total, I guess. We've all pledged $358,000. I'm happy to tell you this month that's grown to $360,000. But there are a number of you who have been giving um, without making a pledge, and that's great. Whether you make a pledge or not is, is fine. And a number of you haven't, you're just giving, and that's $61,000. So let me tell you when, where we're at a month later here. We started June at $504,000 towards this. Now we have $571,000 towards this, which is awesome. So we had $856,000 to go to fully retire, eliminate our mortgage starting last month, and now going into this month, I guess almost ending this month, we just have $789,000 to go. But it, yeah, that's growing and that's awesome. You can applaud that. But this is the part that is even more encouraging to me, and this is what really does align with what we're talking about here this morning, and it's this. Going into June, 43% of you who consistently give to the mission and vision here were giving to Grace Unleashed. That has jumped to 59% just in the last month. So a number of you have said, we're in. That's awesome, yeah. That, that's very, very cool. For those of you who are newer to Grace and haven't participated in this, we ask that your first priority be the mission and vision, giving, but we're also asking you though to consider giving to this as well because we really do believe that this will 
free up resources that we can send right back out the doors here to bless more lives and introduce more people to Christ. So we hope that you'll consider being a part of that. But this is an example of participating with some of your resources. But there are a number of you who participate also with your time, with the time you give, with the investment you make into other people's lives. So let let me show you by way of example this partnership that we all enjoy together. If you're a full-time minister, would you please raise your hand? Any full-time ministers in the room? Okay, a couple of hands from our staff. Okay, I'm gonna ask you another question, and you already get to raise your hand on this. So will you please raise your hand, everybody? Because this applies to you. This is everybody, okay? Are there any full-time ministers in the room? Keep your hands up. (laughs) Keep your hands up. Okay, you can put them down now. How does God reach, by way of example, East Gresham Elementary with the gospel? He takes someone and disguises them as a teacher when really they are a full-time minister and sends them into the school. How does God reach Boeing? He disguises someone as a machinist but really they're a full-time minister and he sends them in there. Now some of you are connecting the dots here and saying, okay, if we're all ministers, what in the world do you do (laughs) if we're all full-time ministers? Well, I work one day a week, Sundays, and, and fish and surf the other five days a week. No, please talk to me afterwards if that's what you think I do. We need to talk a little more. But according to Ephesians 4, verse 12, my role is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. You are the full-time ministers. I'm, and the other crew here, we're here to resource you, equip you, challenge you, encourage you in what we're all called to do and be. That is the partnership of the gospel. And the reason we do that, the reason we participate in that together is because of what Jesus has done for us. To participate in the gospel, you have to experience the gospel first, right? You have to cross over from death to life through right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that happens by receiving Jesus into your life. You don't add him to your life like going to the gym, something you do occasionally. He is your life. You make him the source of your life. And that starts by entering into relationship with him. So have, have you done that? because in a room this size with as many of us, there may be some of you who are still wrestling and grappling with all that this means. But there's a defining moment where you make Jesus the source of your life by entering into relationship with him. And we wanna give you the opportunity to do that in just a little bit. But the bottom line is Jesus is the source of enduring joy that transcends circumstance and situation. And it's a joy that's yours to have. And I heard a story this week that I thought so captured what we've been talking about these last couple weeks and what we'll continue to talk about as we journey through this letter together. Many of you who were here earlier in the service heard from Pastor Bob about our Philippines team and our leader of that team, Bill Berg, um, who wanted to be up here on stage sharing this morning with Kim and just can't because of what's going on with his health right now. When he got back from the trip, he was hospitalized with with a number of issues and in significant pain and 
just is not good. And I heard from the family not long after he was admitted, a couple days, he hadn't eaten because they weren't allowing him to eat while they were running the battery of tests trying to figure out what was going on and they finally got to a point where they said, okay, we can at least give you something to eat. And, and I got the family's permission to share this. They, so they bring in cream of wheat to him. I understand he hasn't eaten for days. He feels miserable. He's in significant pain. He just wants out of this place and can't and isn't getting better. And so they bring him this cream of wheat and cream of wheat is really good with like brown sugar, butter, but plain cream of wheat, I think I'd rather eat tile mortar, you know? It's just, it's not real great. And so he's holding this bowl of cream of wheat and this is what he prays. He thanks God, thanks God for all that he saw God do in the Philippines, for what God did in him. And then he thanks God for his cream of wheat and says something basically like, God, I know this isn't gonna taste very good, <laughs> but I'm thankful. And I thank you for the joy of still being able to eat something. That's enduring joy. That's exactly what we're talking about. And if you know Jesus, it is a joy that is yours to have because there's power in the name of Jesus. And it's a beautiful name because it's a powerful name and it's a life-changing name. And so we're gonna sing about that and worship together. So as our worship team comes, I'd like you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's pray together. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who isn't sure if they have made that life-changing choice to follow you as their Lord and Savior. I pray just between you and them, just silently, they would pray to you and invite you to come into their lives by saying, Jesus, I want joy. I want happiness. I want life. And I ask that you would give it to me by coming into my life. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, as David prayed, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Would you remind us of what our life was like before we knew you? What would we be doing without you? What would our lives be like? Would you renew and restore our joy? Would you remind us that you are at work in our lives? And would you remind us once again of what you've done for each one of us? We love you. And we thank you for this time to worship you and be together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.